Let's jump into this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the, the keynote scripture that we have hung on since we started this series. It's looking to be equipped. And what are we equipped with? What is the item that equips us? Ultimately, it is Scripture. All Scripture was given so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means if you don't know it, how can you be equipped? It's like having a tool that you don't know how to use. Can I give you an example? You guys like my stories? When I was a kid, I was given an alarm clock. You know what one of the hallmarks of a working alarm clock is? That the alarm goes off. Okay? So I set the clock... And it didn't go off. I'm like, all right, well, maybe I did it wrong. Didn't come with instruction. Tried it again. Nothing. Tried the AMP. I'm thinking maybe it's going off and it has a kill switch somewhere. It's going off the wrong time. I'm not here. Nothing. I'm like 10 years old, right? Figuring this thing out. This goes on for a year and a half. Year and a half. You know what I discovered on it? It has a volume knob. Gear and a half. Volume knob. No, it was plugged in. Listen, I work alone, all right? But what is the point? I mean, what good did it do me if I didn't know how to use it? If I didn't take the instructions and say, okay, oh, obviously this is what the issue is. I couldn't, I was 10 years old. Where are my parents at? That's a better question. What are they doing? It's besides the point. They're not here, so we won't deal with that. But the thing is, is that when we look at this, do you guys realize that we take this for granted? I mean, my goodness, today, it just amazes me. I was having a conversation with somebody on Friday night. I think it was Friday night. I don't know. This week went fast. But they, were, they made a statement, a true statement about Scripture that was incorrect. They fully believed it. And I said, I don't think that's correct. Why don't we go back and look? We go there, we look in context, they realize they were misusing the verse because the context made it clear. And it was a very simple thing that we figured out together. There was no ill will, hard feelings, anything like that. But it was just simply like, let's go see what this says. Like we addressed this. But it all hinged upon this. And the problem is today, most Christians, I say most, that's not fair. A lot of Christians, a lot of churches take this for granted, take one piece out of it, build an entire message, an entire series about something that has to do with you to make you feel good. It's like a TED Talk with the Bible verse, and that's all we ever do. But you know, there was a purpose for this. It was to equip you for every good work. You and I are the man of God that it is referencing that this thing is useful, it's profitable. We get our doctrine from it, we get our correction, we get our instruction from it, so why don't we live in it? We take for granted the abilities that we have to pick this up at any point in time. Because you know what happens if you forget this at home? You got it on your phone. You can go anywhere at any point in time and see it, read it. Study it, memorize it, but we don't. We don't care because it's just it's so available to us. It's no different than where we are as a country today. Why is there such an uproar of freedoms being taken away and all of this stuff? Because we've taken it for granted. We just assume that everybody appreciates it. No, they don't. They've always had it. They've never had it tough. I mean, you guys remember your, your grandparents that went through the uh, Great Depression? They thought differently than you and I do. 
way differently. I mean, I, I know uh, one relative of mine, the idea of borrowing money from a bank was a blasphemous word. They, they, you, if you can't pay for it, you don't need it. They may be walking 15 miles to get to work, but if you can't pay for that car, you don't need that car. What do we do today? We don't even care what the sticker price is. What's that monthly payment, baby? Throw some racing stripes on that thing. You could go out and buy a real cute truck if you want. I mean, you do whatever. It's America. Right, Stan? It's an inside joke. If you want to know more about it, ask Stan. He'd be happy to tell you. Maybe Terry. <laughs> it's going to be a good day. I can feel it. But I mean, the point being, guys, is that we have to quit taking everything for granted. Everything that he just told us here that Paul is instructing Timothy on. Like, you need to know this, Timothy. You need to be prepared for this. This is where it hinges. And yet, because we take things for granted, we kind of just become numb to the things of the world. We just, we just don't care. I mean, when we talk about freedoms as an example, when we have now, as a generation, has never really felt the pains of war. My generation hasn't. You've got uh, the Iraqi war. That's pretty much the only thing that we've ever done. We've had this constant conflict, and you know whatever your thoughts on that doesn't really matter. But I don't have people that were my age that were being drafted and sent off to war all the time. I didn't, I've never experienced anything like that. So you see it on the news, you're like, well, yeah, whatever. That's yeah, great and all. But somebody who lived through those wars, I mean, my wife's grandfather would not talk about what he saw at World, uh, during World War II when he was there. Would not discuss it. The subject came up, he got quiet. He wanted nothing to talk. Because whatever he saw impacted him. Like, he didn't take it lightly. And so, we have all of these things that are given to us. And what happens when things are just handed to you? You just tend to take them for granted. It's just the truth. We do that all the time. And so because of that, we don't know what Scripture says, and we don't stand on Scripture. We have ideas that we think that the Bible says, or we've heard this somewhere one time by this guy who's really smart, so therefore it must be true. Obviously, I'm talking about myself. I know. I know y'all were thinking it. But, I mean, where do we go from here, and what do we do? We have to stay on Scripture. What does the Bible say? What does God say on the subject? In other words, we have a biblical worldview. Whatever it is we're looking at, whatever we're addressing, we have to look at it through the filter of Scripture because that is what God has given us to tell us about who He is, what He does, and what He wants done. Is that fair? That's it. Anything outside of that is your opinion. Your opinion may be correct, but ultimately if it's not grounded in Scripture, it's irrelevant. So we have to go back to that every single time. Now, with all of that being said, we have been focused on this series, Equipped. Being equipped for the things that are going on right here, right now, in the world that we live. It's a major problem. In fact, as a, ma a matter of fact today, jo John MacArthur's church. You guys familiar with John MacArthur? It's a name you may or may not be familiar with. Theologically, there's some disagreement, but he's a solid guy. He's got some really good stuff out there. Um, he's been threatened by the state of California. If he tries to hold service today, he's going to go to jail and be a $1,000 fine. What should he do? Well, according to Romans 13, he should be obey the government. Right? In fact, I got, to, I got to ask this question. That's why I'm going here. Will you pull up Romans 13 for me? It says, let every soul, this is verse uh, 1, I believe. 
Yeah, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Go on to the next one. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sakes. For because of this, you pay taxes, for they are God's minister attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So according to this, we just blindly obey the government, don't we? Anything they say, any mandate that they give, we just go along with it, right? This is the argument I get all the time. When they pass gay marriage, guess what? This is the passage they brought up. So what do we do? How do we break this down? This is where having a biblical worldview is crucial because it's not isolating passages and looking at, the, uh, at just one section. We've got to look at the totality of Scripture. And the totality of Scripture says the opposite of this popular interpretation of this passage because it wasn't blindly following what the law said because we are not subject to the law of man, we are ultimately subject to the law of God. But because we're subject to the law of God, then we will obey the governmental authorities that God has set up under one condition. Go to the previous passage. You see it here. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. So do what is good. For he who is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid. What's it talking about? Who determines what is good? It's not the government. It's not the government. I don't know if you knew that or not. This might come as a shock to you. They're kind of screwed up there. I don't care which side of the political aisle you sit on. They all suck. They're awful. All they care about are votes and getting stuff passed and a bunch of other nonsense. Here's the thing. We're not subject to them when they are making things that violate the law of God. The law of God says that we don't murder babies. The law of God clearly dictated that a man and a woman is the only true marriage. You can call it whatever you want. You don't get to define words arbitrarily. God does. So therefore, we stand on that authority. Therefore, MacArthur is well within his right. Why? Because I don't care about what the First Amendment says. Because the First Amendment is nothing more to protect the rights that were given by whom? God himself. That's who we're subject to. So at the cost of what it takes, we will obey God. You guys following me? This is why it's so important. Because when all of this nonsense was going on, there were so many people afraid. Well, we just got to do what they say. You know, they're looking out for our best interest. You know who else is doing that? God. He's the one that told us to assemble. Don't forsake assembling yourselves together as is the practice of some. We've got to be together. We need to build each other up, equip each other, be prepared, go out and do the work of the ministry. I don't care what anybody thinks. I care what God thinks. So it's okay if you don't like me. I will survive. We have to stay with this. This is why it's so crucial. How do we come to this conclusion? Because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that you and I can be equipped and complete for every good work. That's, that's it. It's that simple. You see how we do this? We allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Now, with that idea in mind, this is a little side subject. I'm not charging extra for that today. It's free. You're welcome. 
little BOGO. Chapter 6, verse 10. We've been talking about the armor. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, and the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. So therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all the stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which we will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watched with this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, what are we talking about here? We've been talking about this armor. You can put that image up there for me, guy. We looked at this, obviously this is an artist's rendition, but it gives you an idea. This thing was custom made, every piece interlocked with one another, always starting with the belt. Everything locks in truth. Without the belt, without the shoes, without the helmet, you are incomplete. You need it all. Paul's very clear in all of that. Then we got to the last part, where it says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. The idea is, is that prayer is a part of this armor, but it's overlooked. A Jewish reader would pick up on this. The Roman soldier had these lances. They had these spears. They carried with them all the time. Multiple ones. How do we know that? We see it in Scripture. Because when they went to uh, break Jesus' legs, he was already dead. So what did they do? They grabbed a spear. They didn't say, hey, Jimmy, will you go get me the spear? He had one on him. That's how they, they had him all the time. So it was part of the armor. So a Jewish reader would pick up on that. You and I may not. But the bottom line here is there's all sorts of different kinds of prayer as we were looking at. And then we focus our attentions to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2. Looking at the concept of praying in the Spirit. What does that mean? As we look throughout the entirety of the New Testament, it is very clear that praying in the Spirit and praying in, the tongue, in tongues can be synonymous. One reads into the other. So then we looked at Acts chapter 1 where Jesus said, I need you to wait in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, they're in Jerusalem. And we began to break this down of what's happening here. And so the first thing that we have to understand is that it was during what feast? The Feast of Pentecost. So every able-bodied male Jew had to come back. Jesus knew that. It was 10 days out when he ascended. He said, I need you to hang out in Jerusalem until you're what? Endued with power from on high. So staying in the upper room, which is likely a house somewhere nearby. It said there was 120 people with them. But then it says they were all in one accord in one place. Since it was the day of Pentecost, where were they likely at? Very likely at the temple. Very likely on Solomon's porch. We get this misnomer about it being in the upper room. If it was, it was someplace that was very close to the temple. Because this is where they were supposed to go. This is where the sacrifices took place. So they were very likely at the temple. How many were there during the, uh, the moment when the Holy Spirit came upon them? Well, we know at least 12. Because it says Peter and the 11 stood up. We always assume it's 120 there in that moment. But we don't know that for fact. Because Acts 1 to Acts 2 is not the same day. Okay? So what is going on in this moment? The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They hear this sound like a wind blowing they see a tongue of fire above them and they begin to pray in tongues it gets some attention who would have guessed right kind of a crazy thing going on they're just going about their business hey it's pentecost let's go do this hey what's that sound so what is happening here well there are four things that we've gone through the first part is we're talking about this new covenant that has been introduced it is not based off the old covenant the old covenant the mosaic law we have a new covenant that is based on better promises with that new covenant comes a new high priest. Why do we need a new high priest if we have a new covenant? Because underneath the old covenant, 
only somebody from the line of Aaron could be the high priest. Jesus was not from the line of Aaron. Therefore, the old has to be gone, the new introduced. We have a new high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's different, no beginning, no end. Don't think he's some spiritual. He was a human being that was on this earth. Again, we're not going to go there. What about this last part, the new temple? They're at the temple, but suddenly there's a new temple not made with hands. You and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now the presence of God goes throughout the world. Before, the world had to come to the presence of God. What is happening in that moment? It's the same thing that happened when the temple was inaugurated during Solomon's reign. Is that the fire comes down, the presence of God filled the place that the, whole, or the, the, the priest could not minister. They could not get in because the presence of God was so thick. That's why you have the fire. That's why you have the wind. That's why you have the confusion. And that last part has to do with this. The reclaiming of the world back to God. As I talked about a couple weeks ago, if you study Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 4, Psalm 82, you get this idea of God taking His portion after the Tower of Babel as He sends them out. Angels over these different areas. I don't want to go back into all of this because it takes a lot of time. But God's portion was Israel. So what happens if you wanted to follow Yahweh? You had to become an Israelite. You would be what they called a proselyte. You would come through, uh, into uh, Jerusalem, essentially the, the land. You would forego your past and all your false gods that you worship. You would be circumcised and begin to keep the commandments. And you were considered a proselyte. And the Jews were to treat you as if you were a natural born citizen. And that is how you came to Yahweh. Kind of a big task. But suddenly, with this new covenant, the boundaries are lifted. All people are included. Anybody can come to God. We can all enter boldly into the throne room now. You guys following me? So, all of this is happening in Acts 2. That's a lot. A lot more than we typically read, right? We just get excited about the exciting parts. But we miss all the nuance that's taking place. So with that, why did Jesus tell them, I need you to wait in Jerusalem. I need you to hang out there. He said in Luke chapter 24, verse 44. He says, then he said, these are the words which I spoke while I was still with you. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, the prophet, and the Psalms concerning me. What are those three things? That is the Old Testament scripture. Those were the three sections of all the Old Testament scripture. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said, it is written, and it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, but beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. So, all of this has to take place. It was all written down in advance. The scriptures clearly said that the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer and must die and must rise. Why is he insinuating that point so heavily because they did not think Jesus was going to die. They're waiting on him to set up his kingdom. That's ultimately what they thought was going to happen. Hey, are you going to set it up now? Can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? They're, they're pushing for positions already. Didn't take them very long. Verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Why did he tell them to wait in Jerusalem? It's very simple. Power from on high. He's sending the promise of the Father, which was what? The Holy Spirit would come upon them to do what? Give them power. Power to do what? We know ultimately to preach the gospel. 
everywhere they went. This is important. So we know that when the Holy Spirit came upon them, the power was the point, not the tongues. The tongues are important, but the tongues were nothing more than a sign that the Holy Spirit had come upon them. We see that in Luke 10 and in Luke 11. How did they know that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon the Gentiles? For they heard them praying in tongues. They knew it because they heard that. So the sign was this, but the purpose was this. We cannot flip-flop those two things. Both are important, but we got to keep them in the right order. That is the purpose. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, says, Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. John truly baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when he had come together, he asked, Lord, are you going to restore your kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the time and the season. The Father has put in his own authority. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witness to me in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. Guess what? We're on that end. What was the point? It was power. So I, I reference this. Let's read it. Acts chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and brethren who were in Judea, this is right after the whole thing with Cornelius, heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Why was this big deal? Because of what I said before. Before this, if you were going to come to God, you had to come through Israel to get there. It was the only way. You had to keep their customs and their commandments. Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, the Jews contending with him, saying, you went and an uncircumcised man and ate with him. This was forbidden by the Old Testament law. Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying in a trance and saw a vision, an object just sending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals in the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, nothing uncommon or unclean is at any time entered my mouth. The voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and we're all drawn up into heaven. At that very moment, the men stood before the house where I was having been sent to me from uh, Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you the words by which you, are all, you and all your household will be saved. And as he began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them at, at the beginning. That's crucial. Then I remember the word of the Lord. For John indeed baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the, word, on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these, they became silent and they glorified God saying, God has also granted the Gentiles repentance of life. This is huge. Like we just kind of blow through this. I know I read it fast. But we just kind of blow through this. But there's so much here that we're missing. Because they're just shocked. You're telling me this is the same thing? So there's a couple of things to think about. There was, the Holy Spirit fell upon them in the exact same way as it did the Jews that were in the temple on the day of Pentecost in the beginning, right? That's what it says, correct? He gave them the same gift. This here is a gift from God. All of it. It's a gift from God. Keep that in the back of your mind. That is important. There was the command of Jesus to stay. It was the command of Jesus to wait. It was the command of Jesus that the Holy Spirit would come down. It was the promise of the Father that the gift of the Holy Spirit, with that gift came the power and ultimately the speaking in tongues. Let's not put those out of order. So, is this the first time anything like this has ever happened in Scripture? The question has to be asked and looked upon is that what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody? We see it from Acts 2 on, and that's where we live. 
But what is the result of it throughout God's entire setup? Going back to the Old Testament. If you think about it for a moment, your mind will start spinning. You're like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Let's look at a few guys, okay? Let's look at Numbers chapter 27. We'll start in verse 18. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. Now, what did Joshua do? He led the people into the promised land. He led them on the conquest. I mean, he, he did a lot. And what is the important part here? A man in whom is the Spirit. It's almost like when the Spirit came upon somebody, it wasn't arbitrary, but it was for a purpose. Because they had a unique task that they needed to perform, and without the Spirit's ability and power upon them, they were unable to perform said task. Okay? Just think about this a little deeper. Let's go to Judges chapter 3. Othniel, you see this in the book of Judges a lot. Verse 7, so the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherahs. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rashtham, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served that guy eight years. And when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who, uh, who delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother, the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishtham, uh, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands, and he prevailed over and so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now, this is very short. It's not really saying a whole lot. What happens? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him as he did every judge throughout the book of Judges. What, were, what was a judge? A judge was a deliverer. The nation of Israel would sin. They would do all the things they weren't supposed to do that Joshua and Moses both warned them about. Don't do these things. And then they did those things. And then things would get bad. And they would repent. And God would raise up a judge or a deliverer. That would be how we would say it today. And uh, as they would repent it, and they would bring them out of whatever calamity they were in, and things would be good. And what happens when things are good? You start slacking off. You take things for granted. And that's exactly what they did. And this, this, uh, this round circle of nonsense continues on and on and on, continues on and on today. But what is the key? In order for that judge to be effective in the task of which God has set him to do, the Spirit of the Lord had to come upon him. Okay? Let's look at another one. Judges chapter 6. A man named Gideon. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet and the Abizarites gathered behind him and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh who also gathered behind him and he also sent messengers Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali and they came up to meet him. But what happens? The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And you guys know these stories. That's why I'm not spending a ton of time here. Like, we could go through all of this, but we don't need to. These are names we're familiar with, for the most part. And what happens? Gideon fulfills the task. I mean, he goes to war with nothing but a few guys following behind him and takes out an entire nation. But he didn't do it without the Spirit of the Lord upon him. Look at Judges chapter 13. Here's a name that we all know. Samson. So the woman, verse 24, bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahana, Dan, between Zorah and Ashtail. Okay? So was the Spirit of the Lord upon Samson? Was Samson an idiot? Oh my goodness. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. 
So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, go uh, get her for me as a wife. Now, they're not supposed to do that, but you ever notice that a good man can be corrupted by a good-looking woman? I mean, it's just true. Like, we just lose our minds. It's not your fault. Y'all are born that way. It's just the way it is. Verse 3. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said uh, to his father, Get her for me as she pleases me well. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat though he had nothing in his hand but he did not tell his father his mother what he had done now this is just one example guys we know the story but what what is what are we seeing happening time and time again is that the spirit of the lord came upon somebody for a particular purpose enabling them to do the task that god had called them to do you do not get one without the other So what was Jesus telling his disciples? You got a lot of work in front of you, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to cost every one of you your lives. But I don't want you to do nothing until the Spirit of God has come upon you and endued you with power from on high. You guys see that? This is so important because we have today a powerless church. We talk a big game. Man, do we talk a big game. But we do not act as if the Bible is true. And we do not walk in the authority and the fullness of the Spirit of God as if every part of this is correct. We read about a dude ripping a lion apart as the Spirit of God is upon him. And we're like, oh, that's kind of cute. You ever gone to the zoo? (laughs) Climb in the cage with them. Let's see what you got. Like when we picture Samson, we picture some big jacked guy. Let me tell you something. Some big beefcake stands up here and says, I'm going to rip that lion apart. I might believe him. But somebody who's scrawny, who's doing all of these incredible tasks, might get somebody's attention. But you see how our minds go because of, of like children's church and cartoons and all that. We think Samson's some big dude. We don't know what he looked like. He may have been some. Jared's standing back there. Jared, would you come up here real quick, bud? He probably got up to get a donut or a cup of coffee, and he's going to regret that. Look at Jared, okay? This is my man, Jared. Now, Jared here doesn't look like he could beat his weight out of a wet paper bag, right? I'm not saying he couldn't do it. I'm just saying, you know, you're kind of small. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, listen, all he's got to last is just a few seconds. I'm out of breath. He wins, all right? But imagine that Jared is Samson. If, if he goes out there and picks up the back end of my pickup, y'all are going to be shocked. Ronnie Coleman walks in there and does it, and you're like, meh. You don't know who Ronnie Coleman is. Pick some big jack dude that you can think of, all right? Thanks for stopping by. <laughs> but, I mean, you get my point. It was the fact that the Spirit of God was upon these people that they were able to do these things. You and I have continuously lived in a covenant that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are led by the Spirit of God, and we begin to take it for granted. We don't study the Scriptures. We are not grateful for the body of believers that we are a part of that sharpen one another, that we focus on the Word. Like, we should be grateful. 
incredibly grateful for the opportunities that we have right here at home. Because, because of what we have going on here, and this sounds arrogant to say, and I don't mean it to, but there's not a lot of places that have that. Like, we need to be grateful. And so because of that, what happens when we come together and we just get focused? Focused upon God and what He said. We like the ancillary stuff. We like to draw our attention there. But what happens, as an example, if a bunch of Samson start walking around? The lions lay down. Word gets around. Don't mess with him. What if there was a bunch of us? Throwing out all the nonsense that Samson did, of course. That, that doesn't count. Look at Luke chapter 10. I'll give you a second to flip there. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. It says, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them. So there's some cool stuff that was going on there. I encourage you to go read it. He sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Now, 70 individuals getting ready to go out on a mission from God. And he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Now, you've got to think about this. They're going into territory they would not normally go the jews consider themselves lambs among wolves in the gentile world they were of course were the lambs all right so it's kind of like whenever you're telling the story about something in your life you're usually the hero you leave out the bad parts you know what i'm saying they looked at themselves as the lambs carry neither money bag knapsack nor sandals and greet no one along the road now why are they saying this okay you got to understand the Jewish culture that's going on. Number one, when a Jew traveled, what did he have to do to find a place to stay? Knock on another Jew's door. They all the time. So you don't need to take anything. You just go. You're on a mission from God. With that, when you say peace to somebody, don't stop and talk to anybody. You just say peace because you're on a mission from God. You just keep going. Don't worry about it. So whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. That's why he says don't greet no one along the road. Just, you're on a mission from God. You have temple work to do, and as an example, and when the, the priests were going to the temple, I want to make sure this is clear, they would not greet one another because it would slow them down from the mission that they were supposed to do. Don't get caught up in side conversation. Whatever, you, whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. If a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as they set before you. So just go and just do whatever. Then he says, verse 9, and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now that is a huge statement. What did Jesus tell them when he taught them how to pray? Pray like this, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said to tell them by healing the sick that the kingdom of God has come near to you. Does that tell us something? Maybe about the character of God and what God expects in his kingdom? What's happening in Acts 2 and Acts 1 and the end of the book of John, the end of the book of Luke, what are they thinking? He's setting up his kingdom. We're in that messianic time now. This is what they were waiting on. Look what he says in verse 10. But whatever city you enter and you do not, they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Why do they say that? Anytime there was a Gentile city, that was a term that they used. They didn't even want the dirt from the roads on the Gentile city on them because it defiled them. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Now that's interesting because you have two net results, both of which the kingdom of God has come near. Ones who received the healing because they received the people. One who rejected the people and the message. But guess what? The kingdom of God had come near both. What does that tell us today? It's the same thing. Nothing's changed. Why do we have to stay focused on what Scripture says? 
Because it doesn't matter what they're teaching today, whatever the popular concoction that they come up with today. All that matters is what God says. Right? Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom has come near you. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than in that city. Woe to you, Therese, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done and you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre judgment than for you and you Capernaum who have exalted who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades he who hears you hears me he who rejects you rejects me he who rejects me rejects him who sent me let me ask you something those are bold words what is our job what was their job go into there take the message heal the sick they reject you they reject me wipe the dust off your feet and move on but we get hung up on that so what were they not supposed to focus on? The results. They're only supposed to focus on what Jesus had specifically told them to do. The net results were not their problem, only the obedience to the message. Here we go. Verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now this is a big deal. They had Jewish exorcists. And it was a whole rigmarole that they would go through, one of which they'd have to get the name of the demon in order so they knew who they were talking to. Apparently it had to be some cordialness going on, I guess, in order to cast them out. So suddenly, they're like, even, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Why were they subject to them in his name? Because that authority had been given to them in that moment. Seventy individuals, not twelve, isn't it? Seventy. That's a lot of folks, okay? Now, watch what Jesus said. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Please do not make a theological basis out of that, that Jesus like gave Satan the boot and he fell down to the ground. That's not what he's saying here. Verse 19, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now stop for a minute. So in other words, don't focus on the power. Don't, don't rejoice about that. That is a result of your name being written in heaven. You guys see this? That is what he's saying here, but there's something else that's going on that we have to see and it often gets overlooked. He makes kind of a weird statement. He says, behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. What does that mean? You have permission to kill snakes and bugs. <laughs> So, Paul, if you have the authority, why do you run away from him? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't run. He walks briskly, okay? Look what he said. I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions. And then he says, over all the power of the enemy. So that tells me something. The power of the enemy and these serpents and scorpions have to be tied in together with one another in some capacity. So does he literally mean snakes and literally mean bugs? We don't have scorpions up here. You know where they do? Down south. My aunt who lives in Oklahoma has to get her house sprayed three times a year for these stupid things. You know what I'd do? I'd move. <laughs> I can deal with spiders. Scorpions? I don't think so. Pinchers and a stinger? No, thanks. So what is he talking about? Well, I think we can pretty much, without spending a ton of time here, Figure out what serpents is a reference. We talk about the serpent in Genesis 3. If you come on Wednesday nights and we start that back up here shortly, I'm going to teach you through Genesis 3. I'm going to teach you exactly what the nakash is in Genesis chapter 3. But it calls him a serpent there. 
So we could probably figure that one out. But what are scorpions? Well, what should we do here? We should not assume that we know anything, but we should allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. There's several places that talk about this. We're going to look over in Ezekiel chapter 2. We're just going to look at one, and you're going to take my opinion on this, all right? You don't have to agree with it. You're just going to take it. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1. And then he said to me, Son of man, so we're talking about Ezekiel. Ezekiel's getting risen up as a prophet. Stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. Then the Spirit entered me. Oh, wait a minute. Why is that? It's interesting, because here is he's being called as a prophet. What does he need in order to do that? The Spirit of God. When he spoke to me, and he set me on my feet, and I heard him who spoke to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel. It's a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. Now, who are we talking about? Where is he going to be sent to? The children of Israel, the nation, all right? They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impudent and stubborn children. And I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been, has been among them. Now stop there. What did we see with the 70? Go into that nation if they receive you. Heal the sick. Tell them that the kingdom of God has been near. If you go into a nation and they refuse you, wipe the dust off your feet and tell them the kingdom of God has been here. Whether they hear you or whether they don't, they will know that a prophet of God has been there. You guys see, the, you see a connection there. You guys see the same thing going on. Verse 6, And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions, do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. What is the thorns, briars, and scorpions that he is dwelling among that he's talking about? The children of Israel. It's the people. The rebellious people whose heart is not near God. So now let's go back to Luke chapter 10, verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents, scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. What is, what, tying these two things together, what do we see here? You've got the people that will come against you, and you've got the enemy that will come against you. And guess what? We don't bow down to any of that authority. We have an authority that is greater than all of that. So what do we do? We wipe the dust off our feet. We move on, folks. I don't care if they agree with us. I don't care if they don't like the message. All I care about is what God has said. So what should we be doing, church? Well, we should be doing exactly what they had been doing. Exactly. So let's go on here. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Start in verse 1. We're going to read through a bunch of this. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, as I said, Day of Pentecost, they're likely at the temple. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Upon there appeared, or then there appeared to them divided tongues, as of fire, think of the temple. And one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all of these Galileans? So what is it? What is happening here? 
Well, verse 8, how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what could this mean? Now, what is happening here? We have the undoing of Genesis chapter 10 in the Tower of Babel and the 70 nations where they were, God confused their language and sent them out, took for himself, with, starting with Abraham, a nation, his inheritance, his own people, to draw the rest of the world into them. Suddenly now, they are confused because they're hearing all their own language by a bunch of Galileans who are uneducated, ignorant folk. They don't know nothing. God is reclaiming the world once again. So we've got that going on. So you think, oh man, everybody's on board. This is awesome. Look what's happening. Nope. Verse 13, others mocking said, they're full of new wine. That's a really nice way to say they're drunk. Is that the same stuff we see today? There, no matter what happens, people will reject what's right in front of them. They will reject God. I don't care what you do. Look at the, the story that Jesus tells of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus just said, listen, send somebody. Raise him from the dead, whatever. That he can speak to my brother. He said, he's got Moses and the prophets. He won't believe those. He won't believe somebody risen from the dead. It doesn't matter what's in front of him. That's why it's so important. So what does Peter do here? Well, he stands up with the 11. That's why I say I think there was 12 there. Were there more? Maybe. I don't know. But we know there were 12. He raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And this is where it breaks down. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God. So, whatever Joel prophesied, and I broke that down in the past for you guys, but go back and read it. We are talking about the end of time. What are we talking about? The Messianic kingdom. Jesus will rule and reign from the throne of David in Jerusalem. He is yet to do that. Okay? He said, during these last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. On my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. What days? The last days. So we have a lot of things that are going on. On the servants of God, men servants and maid servants, his spirit is poured out. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above, signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire and vapor smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there's a whole lot that's going on here. We know that God is using these signs. This is something that they, they, the Jews believed that when the Messianic kingdom was inaugurated, that the Spirit of God would fall on all Jews. And it would be the time of prophecy. They would be prophesying. What is prophesying? It is declaring the works of God. Not necessarily a predictive thing, because remember, in a Jew's mindset, it is a, a pattern of prophecy. The already but not yet. Something's happened, and it's been fulfilled, and something happens again, and it fulfills it multiple times. We think differently. So this is, this is what Peter's talking about. This is what Joel was talking about. He's telling them. So verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So they knew about it. So did God use signs? Absolutely. We talked about that last week. He used signs then. Does he use signs now? How do we know that the Spirit of God has fallen upon somebody? That's how they knew. Why would we assume it would be any different? 
Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by. And then he gets into something that I find very interesting. David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. These are the words of David. So who is David talking about? Jews thought thought David. He said, you will not allow my soul. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, And knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. So this part here is a reference to the resurrection that comes before these last days that we have now inaugurated with the Holy Spirit coming upon him. This Jesus God has raised up, which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and you now hear. So they saw and heard what is happening. There's something that has taken place here. This was the promise of the Father. Jesus ascends. He sends the Holy Spirit upon them. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sin. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now, let's stop here for a minute. In verse 38, he says, I want you to repent and let you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, what is that talking about? You have to remember, there were four sects of Judaism, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, and Essenes. As a result of this, the term Christian ultimately gets adopted to deal with another sect of Judaism. It was not a term of endearment. It's only mentioned three times in the New Testament. But it was people who were following the way. So, when somebody went from being a Sadducee to, say, a Pharisee, what they would have to do is be baptized, and they don't do it like we do it. They would stand there in the water. They would dunk themselves. It's sort of a mikvah, a cleansing. But they were making a declaration of agreeing with the, the doctrine, if you will, of that group. So when he says that you are bat- being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you are now associating yourself with the teachings of Jesus himself. You see that? So that is what's going on there. As a result of the repentance, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we have this gift here. Is the indwelling of the Spirit that we receive in the moment of salvation that's spoken of in Ezekiel 36 and what we saw in Acts chapter 2, the same thing. The question is, is what does Scripture say? Because we have to go back. As a result of what they do, they'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, who is the promise to? Them, their children, and everybody after them. Okay? 
So look at Acts 11, verse 16 again. I remember the word of the Lord. He said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed. So he associated the Holy Spirit coming upon them as the gift that was promised by Jesus that happened to them in Acts chapter 2. Peter is referencing that same gift, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. But we know at the end of John, in John chapter 20, that Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about the same thing. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the endowment with power from on high, the result of which will give you the ability to speak in tongues. How do we know this is what we're talking about here? This is so important because this has been so mistaught and so misunderstood because, frankly, a bunch of people that have held some sort of belief in this got weird. God's not weird. People are weird. Don't look around. But we're the ones that screw stuff up. Not Him. We come up with a bunch of off-the-wall ideas and all this other stuff. Let's just stay with Scripture. Because that's really all that matters. Look at Luke chapter 11. We're going to go to verse 11. Now remember, in Luke chapter 10, we were talking about the 70 and all this other stuff. The serpent, the scorpions. Luke chapter 11 says, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? If he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This seems completely off the wall. Why is he using those different ideas? Well, in context, this is the same thing as what was going on in Luke chapter 10. But anybody who asks the Father will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You guys see this? This is why Jesus told them they needed to wait. It wasn't so they could pray in tongues. They had nothing to do with it. They were not waiting for that to happen. I hope I get my prayer language today. That wasn't happening. They had no idea, as far as I know. It doesn't say they did or didn't, I guess, but we've assumed that. Just like everybody that came before them, they needed the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon them to do what God had called them to do. You and I are no different, but we seem to think that we are. We seem to think that we're somehow exempt from this to a degree. We're laying a foundation here, church, because we have to be the people of God, endued with power from on high to carry out the work of God. We can go and do things and do good things in the name of the Lord. But if we think for one second we can do it without this, we've got ourselves full. You see, we are the hands and feet of God. We're going somewhere with this, and we're just laying a foundation. I want you to stay with me on all of this. We're going to build upon this next week, and we're going to build upon it in the next couple of weeks. This is the crucial part that we have to understand. God never left behind a powerless church, ever. His people are His hands and His feet to do His work. 